Hey, everybody. Matt Gurney here. Jen Gerson is with me. Israel and Hamas are at war. As we record this, we expect to see a ground offensive imminently. This all happened after we recorded our podcast last week, and there's no way around it. This is going to be a, a sadder podcast. The world has changed. And on an equally important note, news of utterly global significance has passed in Canada this week, and that is the uh, environmental impact legislation has been declared unconstitutional. This is, this is of course, um, uh, definitely going to uh, generate an enormous amount of interest and uh, compelling content in the wake of uh, the ongoing war in the Middle East. This is the latest episode of The Line Podcast. One more week, folks, until we all gather together for our first line event in Toronto. Email us at lineeditor at protonmail.com. We're down to a handful of tickets, but we've got a few left. We hope you can join us in Toronto on October 18th. I, you know what? I'm a broadcaster, Jen. I've been on the radio every day this week, and I'm at a loss for words. Um, let me let me tell you before we get into it. I want to tell you what happened to me on Friday. And not that it's a huge story. Last weekend, of course, was a long weekend, Thanksgiving. And because of this, uh, my son's hockey schedule had changed, and I didn't have to get up early on Saturday morning. So I stayed up late on Friday night. My wife went to bed early. She was tired. The kids went to bed at the normal time. And I'm like, I'm going to listen to music. I'm going to read books. I'm going to have a drink like daddy's night off. What this actually meant is that I stayed up late enough on Friday to catch the beginning of the attacks in Israel saturday morning local time i didn't sleep that night because i could tell from the videos i didn't have a sense yet of the atrocities but i could tell people in 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 starot with with their cameras out their windows and there's hamas ground forces rolling through the city i know enough about the region and the geography to have known that something catastrophic had happened but what I didn't appreciate until later in the weekend was the carnage of it. I, I thought a few dozen guys in pickup trucks were driving through the streets, machine gunning random passersby. The act, the fact that they were able to occupy settlements long enough to butcher the population and to carry off the children and the young women, that didn't become clear to me until later. Thanksgiving dinner was weird this year. Yeah. Um. Again, I... I, I... I'm at a bit of a loss as to what to say about this as well. I mean, I can only speak to really just the reaction that I saw online and in media um, from Canada. I can speak to the Canadian perspective. It frankly horrified me to watch the degree to which a lot of established elements on what I will broadly term the left has responded to this. Um I think that, of course, you know, that the conflict between Israel and Palestine is long running and complicated. History is complicated, you know, mm -hmm. part 100 in a series. Um, but I think what happened is that you had uh, a lot of people who had been steeped in the last couple of years in like decolonization discourse um, respond to initial reports about, you know, violence in Israel, thinking that this was going to be a kind of a PLO style incursion and cheer it on. And then find their entire asses hanging out in public when it turns out that this is less PLO and more ISIL. Yeah. You know, the types of atrocities, and we've talked about them at the line, that have been committed here. You know, we're not talking about 
uh, Hamas shot up some IDF soldiers or Hamas, you know, engaged in military targets, which which might have been horrific, but understandable or legitimate, according to a, a resistance kind of rubric. We are talking about uh, terrorists and militants beheading babies, raping women, killing elderly civilians on the street. If you can justify this under the rubric of of, of resistance fighting or, uh, you know, forms of, of what you would consider legitimate armed or violent tactics, if you can if you can if you can justify this, then you have you have no no moral code. You have there is nothing you could not justify in the pursuit of your ideological and political aims. And I think that a lot of people on the left have revealed some truths about their character. Mm. Um, and I think you and I are shared in saying we take their positions at face value. We accept their sincerity. We accept your sincerity. I've been saying um, that all week. You know, when when people, the one that, the, I don't want to call it a nuance, but one of the things you and I have talked about this week, and I wrote about it in, in my column earlier in the week, I think a lot of what happened, and I'm not making excuses, but I think you actually made this point really well online. It was a long weekend in Canada. A lot of people weren't paying attention to the news. They heard, oh, there's been a flare-up in violence. You know, rockets mm-hmm. are flying around. There's there's artillery going back and forth. There's skirmishes. Oh, Hamas heard this before. It. And they went, yeah. oh, okay, the latest in a long-running series. You know, nothing new here. Uh, um, Palestinian solidarity. You know, yeah. it's, it was it was age-old stock wrote, standard response. I wrote in my column as well, if you are digitally savvy enough to be plugged into the live streams or the verified video accounts from reputable organizations that are coming out online, or if you're getting your news by reading the globe the day after or catching the the nightly newscast on the CBC, you have a radically different understanding of what's happening here. And I think there were a lot of people who either didn't care. And I think those people exist. I think there are people in Canada who know exactly what happened and love it. But I also think there's a lot of people who went, aha, outbreak of violence in the Middle East, you know, part of a long running, part of our heritage, right? Another heritage. Yeah, but yeah pull out the KFA and yeah. wave the Palestinian flag. And they went right back to the positions that they have had since university debates. Mm-hmm. And what has been happening over the course of the week is increasingly, even in the mainstream press, not as much as I'd like and not as fast as I'd like. But the videos and the photos and the images and the survivor testimonials are coming out. And there's people who would have five days ago been stand with the people of Palestine who are now going. And I don't think they're all going to swing into turning into Zionists. But I think Hamas, by their tactical success, has split the left. There's... This is the other the, the other thing that I think has become really obvious. And you and I have talked a little bit about this before, is that we sense that the, the, the left kind of had its peak moment in 2020 and the pendulum has been swinging back ever since. Yep. There is nothing more discrediting to what I would say sort of leftist identitarian rhetoric as watching people who five minutes ago would have said words or violence than cheering on Palestinian atrocity. Like, you know what I mean? Like cheering on um, uh, the absolute most horrific and barbaric acts that, that, that can be, um, can, can be, can be committed against other humans and to do so under frankly, leftist decolonialism rhetoric and rubric. I mean, it's just, it, it just demonstrates that 
those people either have no internal moral compass whatsoever and they're not thinking through their positions or brain worms or they're brain wormed or essentially those positions around words or violence are are in fact utterly and utterly disingenuous and are only designed to shut down competing and alternative points of view. To me, it just it just betrays the absolute disingenuousness of those positions. You cannot simultaneously hold that words are violence and that mass rape is resistance. Yeah, it's 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 an incongruent. It's utterly incongruous. You cannot hold those two positions simultaneously. You and I spoke earlier in the week, and we've warned everybody already that this is going to be a dark podcast, but we are just for a minute. We're going to talk about particularly the the element of sexual violence that has been revealed in this raid. Trigger warning. We talked in the week about how it was interesting, and you and I are monitoring some um, prominent left-wing voices or outlets or organizations that have taken a strongly denialist tact to Mm -hmm. the uh, element of this that was involved sexual violence against prisoners and rape rape and mutilation and one of the things that kind of jumped out at me it's very similar to what you were saying a minute ago about the uh the words are violence but like mass rape is resistance the very people who would have a week ago been standard bearers in the believe all women movement are like well not this time there is a refusal to acknowledge credible eyewitness testimony, survivor testimony, medical reports, and journalism from credible organizations that this pogrom involved mass rape. And you had a brilliant insight when we spoke privately in the week about this. Killing in war is honorable. Raping isn't. And for the people who want to wrap up this resistance, like this whole thing as an act of resistance, if it is acts of violence against a colonial oppressor or striking of military targets, that can be a glorious part of your revolutionary narrative. Gang raping the female hostages doesn't fit that. No, so. and I, I and I think I, that we needed we talked a little bit more about how that um, fit into the male psychology a bit. Um, there is no military justification for rape. I mean, there's no military justification for atrocity most of the time, but I mean, if you are really, really sick in the head, you could justify killing children as like you're killing the next generation of oppressors, I guess. And I mean, I'm not, let me be clear about how fucked up I think that thinking is, but rape betrays the truth of this. Rape is just gratification of male ego. Rape is about domination. Rape is about vengeance rape is 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 there is no military or resistance-based justification for rape it's simply a dishonorable act in war um it betrays the moral vacuum under which these fighters are operating under um and it just is impossible to square with any kind of 1992 plo liberation rhetoric It, it just isn't and i think that's why rape at the rape the rape allegations in in particular and the rape crimes in particular have struck such a particular denialist bone among the people who are supporting this. And it I, seems I, to me almost like they're like, well, we didn't behead too many babies, but we sure as hell didn't rape those women. Yeah. Like that's it's there's something really weird happening there. And I think that that is it has to do with with, with honor and perception of, 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 of things. There's also been some interesting rhetoric about problematizing the rape allegations, again, from the same Me Too crowd saying no, even bringing up the fact that these allegations are happening is part of a program to dehumanize the fighters. And I'm like, the fighters themselves are doing a great job dehumanizing themselves, guys. Like, 
sorry, I'm not going to fail to mention that rape is happening because it makes the Hamas look bad. <laughs> it just, I, I don't know where to go. Um, I think, Jen, you mentioned baby beheading. That was the other interesting narrative this week. So yeah. let me walk th- the, the listeners through what happened here. And I trigger warning once again, because this isn't fun either. I-24 News is a TV news station in Israel, and earlier in the week, one of their reporters, when at a scene, uh, one of the massacre sites in southern Israel, was told by a soldier that uh, in broken English, the soldier spoke like functional English, but not good English, and he told the reporter, uh, women, babies, their heads have been chopped. And that story went all over the world. I saw the New York Post had it, uh, the, the, the Daily Mail had it. Uh, went viral, but I looked into it that day and I I ran down every instance I found of it in a reputable Western outlet and they all traced back to that same interview. And I went to myself, you know what? I've seen this happen before. One source being repeated in multiple yeah. places yep. looks like multi-source confirmation, but it isn't. Yep, so, so we're I didn't, both careful. I didn't say anything about it. I mm-hmm. just like, I I waited for it. The next day, CBS followed by a series of other outlets began having multiple source confirmation from multiple soldiers who'd been at the scene, journalists who had been at the scene, and eventually a Israeli government official with part of the emergency uh, with oversight of the emergency response effort in the south were like, yes, the victims we are finding in some cases have been beheaded and this does include babies and children. There's been no numbers that have been given. there's been no specifics. And kind of to what you said before, there's no military glory, like there's no military glory in beheading children. And I think it's been very interesting to look at the two things that have been specifically pushed back on. It is rape and it is beheading of minors. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we are talking about this, I want the listeners to know Jen and I are not oblivious to the fact that this is the most fucked up podcast we've ever had. We have never had to talk about this stuff before. We would also like to point out that neither of us is entirely okay this week. <laughs> Can we just say that? Nobody look watching the news in any depth is entirely okay right now. Um, and that's just like, we're getting even just a, just a fraction of what people in Israel and to some extent Gaza are dealing with. I, I mean, we're the trauma is so bad that even people who are thousands and thousands of miles away and have only been exposed to it by pictures are not okay, but not okay right now. So let's just say that right off the bat. I'm no, I'm not okay. I burst into tears once randomly this week. uh, And it was random. Like it wasn't like I was looking at terrible video. Uh, I think just sort of some of what I had seen had got into the old noggin and was rattling around. I'll tell I'll tell you wh- what it was. Um, I was reading a story about uh, a woman who was at the uh, the music fest in the south, and she had called her family and said, "Like we're under attack, where they're shooting at us." And her dad drove down to try and rescue her, mm-hmm. and he's now missing. But the daughter escaped alive. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that. I thought of it as a dad, and I had this weird sense come over me instantly. And I'm I'm getting choked up even thinking about it. That's okay. Fair trade. Yeah. That, 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 like, and if, if someone told me I had to get in the car and drive to my death, but the trade was that my daughter would walk out of that massacre alive. I'd have my windows down, my tunes on. Like I, I, would, I would have a completely good drive down to, to meet my death. 
And it was just this strange feeling came over me as I was hearing that story. Kind of like weirdly sounds like dad kinship, like the like the global dad hive mind. I was like, okay, good job. Like, that was he, the same story that got my husband too. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I mean, also, I would also point out that, of course, you know, in re- in response to this, we have Israel now basically flattening Gaza, mowing the lawn, so to speak, in order to demolish Hamas's military capacity. And we when have we again... recorded it, it hasn't started, but it looks imminent. Like yeah, exactly. Recording this right now. I've been watching the feeds all day. It hasn't pe- really popped pe- people, off, but it's people coming. have people have claimed that like already twelve hundred Gazans are dead. Um, I don't know whether or not those sources are credible or not. I think it's hard to know in the fog of war what what what's credible here. The same people who were cheering on Palestinian resistance are also the same ones who are now highlighting the evils of Israeli state-sanctioned violence and innocent Gazans who are going to get killed. I mean, of course, it's it's it. Everyone hates when innocent people get killed, but I refuse to play the game of playing into a moral equivalency to this. It is not morally equivalent to say Israel, in response to atrocities, is going to go bomb some apartment buildings to dim- diminish Hamas's you know military capability, and lots of people are going to get hurt as collateral damage as a result. That is not the moral equivalency of someone going into a nursery and beheading babies. I'm sorry. Like I, I realize that at the end of the day, everybody's dead, but that but intent matters and tactics matter. And I don't think that these things have the same moral equivalency for me. Um, and I think, yeah, they they just they just don't. I don't know. Um, I just want to mention to our video viewers who may be wondering. I am fiddling with a Nerf bullet right now. It's a nervous habit I have. Um, I'm not holding it against you. Anyway, I I I I don't. As I said, both sides both sidesism is is really finding a comeback in journalism today. I find that moral clarity is out the window. <laughs> uh, yeah. The second the second the second it involves uh, uh, Israel. Uh, Israel. Yeah. I'll, I'll mention something else as well. Um, I, look, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an international law lawyer, but I've read the damn. Th- things and i have some understanding of this from a career of actually having for especially for a canadian journalist an unusual focus on security and defense issues people don't know what the fucking laws of war are yes there are some there are no there are but like there seems to be this limit that what happens is that like at the start of a conflict like you're given all right you got a thousand free dead civilians but after that it becomes a war crime like no Every military strike, every single one of them Israel undertakes will have to meet a proportionality test. Does the military value of the target warrant the amount of civilian life that Israel reasonably believes may be lost? And people seem to think that like that you cannot bomb civilian targets. You absolutely can if it's proportional. And there should be things that should be done before that that give you cover under the rules of war, things that include taking steps to minimize civilian casualties. What I have watched, especially over the last 12 hours or so, it's really picked up, Israel saying, get the fuck out of the following areas. They're doing media broadcasts. They're doing international reports. They've been dropping leaflets. I know why they're doing that. They are ticking a box required that they are required to tick under the rules of war they are signaling to civilian populations we are coming 
and we are giving fair warning. After that, every target they strike will have to pass a proportionality review. We bombed X target with Y munitions for Z objectives. That is how you determine whether or not it was a valid legal military strike and what might end up happening. And look, I'm not trying to preemptively justify anything. Israel may well fuck this up. They may lose their minds. And especially given how high tensions are right now, we cannot ignore the fact that it, there may be excesses in this war because Israelis are angry. Yeah, And I think also on top of that, if your bombs are 95% accurate and you drop 10,000 of them, 500 bombs are missing what they aimed at and they're landing mm -hmm. on civilian targets. Again, that's recognized as part of war. That happens. But what may end up happening here, and this is going to piss people off, it is theoretically possible to amass massive civilian deaths by an accumulation of completely legal proportional military strikes. The, the other problem in all of this, and this is why I also have a hard time seeing a lot of this as being equivalent here is that you know israel by law does and has to abide by a rule of war a rule of war which includes by the way that you can't rate pow's um hamas yeah hamas okay i realize that hamas is distinct from palestinian people i get that they're distinct but interrelated ent entities Hamas's own charter, as written in 1988, mm -hmm. is genocidal. Yes. It's genocidal and theocratic. Yes. They not only want to kill all the Jews, they want to establish Israel as an essentially as an Islamic state, by an, a new IS, by killing all the Jews. This is written into what they are explicitly out to do. This is not, you know... Glorious resistance fighters, Che Guevara, writ version two. These are this is IS. This is these are these are these are genocidal theocrats. Um, that is the people who they are fighting, and these are people who obviously don't recognize boundaries and conflict. They don't recognize rules of war. They don't recognize. I mean, we know that Hamas, for example, has a has a long and established habit of hiding military legitimate military targets in civilian, civilian complexes yeah. under children of their own children sometimes um and that we know that these are this is a very oppressive force even to palestinians and how you're going to thread the needle of diminishing hamas's military capability while not killing innocent civilians i don't think it can be done I'm sorry. Like, I, I wish it were not true. I wish it were otherwise, but I think that's just the reality that we're facing here. And so I, like I said, I can't draw a moral equivalency after Hamas has knowingly committed atrocities as part of a campaign of terrorism. One of the, you know, the funny thing is too, especially in recent years, some of the uh, activities of the Israeli government have made it harder for me to support Israel. I mm -hmm. and I am unapologetically. I've always been uh, in support of Israel and its right to defense itself. Uh, defend itself. I don't like the current government. I don't like what they've been doing. No, and, neither do I. And I think Israel's uh, establish reestablishment of settlements and expanding settlements in the West Bank huge problem, provocative and counterproductive and stupid yep. and wrong. Agreed. And I think the the humanitarian situation in Gaza has been untenable for years. But decades. What decades. What Hamas has now done 
is they have forced Israel's hand in a way where Israel was prepared either out of completely cynical self-interest or out of humanitarian concerns. They have not wanted to mow the lawn in Gaza in a significant way because mm-hmm. of the, well, the, the death toll will take on both sides. And again, I don't care if you think it's humanitarianism or cynicism, it works either way. But what I will say is that Hamas has now made itself enough of a threat that Israel no longer has a choice. Yeah, the other- have a choice on its southern border and to maintain deterrence against all of its enemies. Hamas has to be destroyed now. I'm not saying that as any kind of I'm declaring a moral imperative. This is not me lecturing you. This is me explaining how the Israelis are going to view this. When they say never again, they are not fucking around with that. The other thing I would just point out here is like, you know, there might be situations in which armed resistance is what would be considered legitimate in my mind. There might be certain circumstances and certain types of violent tactics that might be considered legitimate. But in order for it to be considered legitimate, you know, it has to be tied to a specific achievable strategic target. What Hamas has done here isn't targeted violence. It's a pogrom. This is not serving the end of a Palestinian state or a peaceful resolution or a two-state solution. It has set all of those things back. It's in fact, I I think that the possibility of a two-state solution in our lifetime has just gone to zero. It's dead. So now 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 the only option here for the Israelis, I think, is 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 unequivocal win. Um, however, however brutally that must be achieved, which is a really scary thought. Um, but the end result this could escalate and Israel this could escalate dramatically, but the problem is even if it does, Israel's position of unequivocal win is not going to change. No, they had no. That's that's essentially what the the, the the groundwork has been reframed around what Israel's win conditions have to be in order to sustain itself now, and I think that's tragic. Like I mean, you and I, I think would both be would have been last week two state solution. I want to see Palestinians do well and be happy and be fruitful and and prosperous in Gaza and the West Bank. I would want the the the, the um, Israel to to see settlements in the West Bank in particular. Um, but I just don't see that after what happened this week, that outcome isn't likely. That outcome isn't going to happen. I still so this, want those things. Like I still, I still want all those I still, things. Yeah, I still want those things. I just don't think that it's possible anymore. It's not. And so, 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 so the, right the, the violence didn't serve a strategic end. The violence only. <clears throat> the violence was the violence existed for its own sake. That, that that's what it was about, and I think well, that the rape. Re- the rape and the mass rape and the, like the, the, the indiscriminate violence sort of demonstrates who these people are and what their goals are. And I don't think that that can be allowed to coexist with anything resembling an organized state. Israel, and I, I think people underestimate how when there's some horrible crime in most of the world, we in the West go, oh, that was awful. Never again, never again. For us, it's a slogan. We say never again the way Republican senators say thoughts and prayers after a bunch of kindergartners get mowed down by someone who shouldn't have had a gun. Never again, just so long as we don't have to use violence to ensure or that people, happens. Or think about it or do anything about it or yeah. raise the foreign aid budget or like bulk out our diplomatic status. Never again is a slogan in mm-hmm. almost every Western country. Minus one. They take it seriously there. And I wrote this in my column. One of the videos I saw of Jewish women being shoved into some kind of vehicle. I wasn't clear what kind of vehicle it was, but they're being packed in like cattle and carted off to the slaughter. You don't need to know a lot of history 
to know what that is reminiscent of. And there's one country in the world that exists to not let that ever happen again. Hamas has made itself either through kind of a nihilistic apathy, like, oh, we don't care, or tactical and strategic miscalculation. They have turned themselves into an existential threat that Israel must destroy, first of all, to destroy it for its own security, but also to show the rest of the world that they mean it when they say never again. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to justify any of the excesses we might see. And obviously, I know this is going to sound trite. I call upon Israel to exercise all restraint possible when conducting military operations in civilian areas. But I think anyone out there who thinks talking about some UN resolution or waving the Geneva Conventions around, you are stuck in grad school in the 1990s and you look like a fucking idiot today. This is basic humanity stuff none of us would allow a threat like that to exist on our borders and i honestly think honestly i said this to you before if like prince edward island was lobbing rockets at halifax we would not be as restrained in dealing with that as we would demand israel be there is so yeah, I, I just want to say, like, so I, I just want to pivot back to Canada a little bit here because, of course, we're not Middle East experts, and I don't think either of us pretend to be. We're just people who have opinions, and we're offering them to the world, and they can take them or leave them as they will. What did, was interesting from from my perspective was was a, from a Canadian perspective and from a North American perspective. In addition to watching a lot of more leftist organizations um, lose their shit, uh, they don't know the what use- position to take. No, they didn't know what position to take. I mean, what was interesting to me was was watching the decolonialism narrative, decolonialism discourse. Now, I want I want to say that we actually have a piece coming on this yeah. from somebody who is First Nations and is two white people. I think that we have a limited role to play in in expressing our opinions on this. But I do want to say personally, First Nations people in Canada and North America are not beheading babies. Okay, they're not uh, um, raping women. They're not going off and indiscriminately killing white settlers. Uh, they're not doing any of these things. First Nations people in North America are overwhelmingly peaceful and engaged in forms of civil disobedience, which while I might personally disagree with on a case-to-case basis, fall very, 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 very fall short of the mark of what Hamas is doing. I mean, I think if I wanna... most of them are, but the ones that are doing yeah, the it, ones that are doing that. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, like we're talking like, hey, the last big major action of First Nations people was over the Wet'suwet'en protests, and 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 yeah. you know they they destroyed, they destroyed some rail blockades, okay? And like we got into a fuss about the destroying of the rail blockades for for legitimate reasons, and there was a back and forth. They are not committing atrocities, okay? <laughs> so trying to frame all of this under the rubric of decolonization, firstly, I think that's obscene. Secondly, I think that that is and will be used to delegitimize First Nations people in this country. Uh, because, and first, I just don't think that the tactics here, it's, it's you're using decolonialization rhetoric to legitimize Hamas's atrocities. And I think that that can only rebound badly on First Nations people who overwhelmingly are using what I would be considered, what I would consider to be completely legitimate means of passive resistance and civil disobedience. Um so yeah, I think that's kind of gross, personally. But you know what? I think that I'm going to put a pin in that and allow 
First Nations people to have their own say on it. That's my opinion as a white person. So take it or leave it. Here's one more white guy's opinion. I saw a professor at McMaster and McMaster has been a weird hotbed of this because it was mm-hmm. QB local uh, 3906, uh, which represents McMaster faculty that kind of set the high bar on stupid, stupid oh. statements earlier on. QB. Um, oh, QB. I'm not going to dwell on QP. Let's not dwell on QP. I would get too angry talking about it. But what I will say was that there was a professor at Mac who had tweeted, you know, um, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it was like, you know, these terms, decolonization, resistance, these are not just terms we use in school. That to me was a perfect moment of, I will take you at your word. If, If what Hamas has done is what you mean when you call for the decolonization of Canada, I think that's a bad idea, but I will accept your sincerity. And there was a, there was an American academic who also had tweeted, "Settlers are never civilians. You cannot like no settler can claim civilian status. So all attacks on settlers are justified." According to the the intellectual theories of of many modern progressive leftists, you and I, most of our listeners, and certainly all of our children, are settlers. So if someone out there wants to take the position that I am not a civilian and that me and my family can be attacked on the basis of our presence here, again, I will accept your sincerity. I believe you. The amount of damage to left-wing causes and institutions these people are doing to themselves this week is astonishing, and they're too dumb to realize it. I I think we should probably pivot to a little Canadian news, but I just want to sneak in one more thing. I uh, I reported very critically on the Canadian government this week. Uh, Global Affairs Canada staff, who fucked around with me, tried to spin me a bullshit narrative, uh, had that released to the Canadian people about the distinction between operational and open in the embassies. All I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage people to read my, my report about that. It's up on the website, readtheline.ca. The big picture comment I want to make, the Canadian government has actually been 100% on the right side of this issue. So have the conservatives. So have the NDP. Mm-hmm. That alone is interesting. I don't know if it holds when we're on day 81 of the invasion of Gaza and the death toll has hit 100,000. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But it's interesting. And I, as of all the things I've been taking in this week, like you and I were talking uh, a few minutes ago about how I think a lot of the lefties who were too busy with their Thanksgiving dinner to realize how bad this was, the liberals the conservatives and the NDP, they all figured it out really quick. Yeah. So I would say uh, kudos to the, to the political consensus that formed here. Yeah. A rare, for once, for once, rare salute from us, a rare salute from us, which is not to say that uh, global affairs Canada has covered itself with glory, but from the government, from the politicians for once, thank you for being straightforward on this one. Yeah, And we'll see how Um, long their clarity holds. Look, I didn't see this. You want to talk about it? Well, no, on, on news, on Canadian news of absolutely equal global import, um, cheering right up over here. Uh, the Supreme Court rules that the environmental impact legislation, formerly known as C sixty nine, has been declared unconstitutional. Okay, I'm pleased. Was that the No New Pipelines Act? Like that's, that's the conservatives yes. C sixty nine, uh, which was had been nicknamed by uh, Jason Kenney the no, the No More no Pipelines Pipeline. Act. Yeah. It was sort of a, this uh, triumvirate of of legislation that the federal liberals have come down on which had the in- probably intentional but slightly inexplicit unexpl- effect of shutting down um, growth of major infrastructure, like pipelines, mines, that sort of thing. Uh, 
was passed several years ago. Kenny Kenny took it to court. It finally has uh, the Alberta Court of Appeal ruled on this. Actually, said in in fairly stark terms, what the government, the federal government, is attempting to do or attempted to do with Bill C sixty nine was unconstitutional. And the reason why is, of course, is that provinces under the Constitution, under 92A, have control over their natural resources. This is something, this was a really big deal when the Constitution was repatriated back in the 80s. And it was something that I think Peter Lougheed, the then former premier of Alberta, was very, very um, um, adamant about. And that is, you know, the federal government, the Alberta's oil shouldn't belong to the federal government, shouldn't belong to the Confederation. Alberta oil should maintain the right to develop its own resources um, and, and get those things to market. Things start to get weird when you start about when you start talking about how you get that oil to other provinces and get that oil to seaside, mm-hmm. because of course Alberta is a landlocked province. And the second a say an oil pipeline has to cross into provincial borders, then it falls under the federal government to yeah. regulate. There, that's the federal government that has to, you know, sign off on the environmental regulations. So things get complicated. Confederation is is complicated. But essentially, what Bill C sixty nine tried to do, and again, this is going to be a very very layman take on this one because this is not my wheelhouse of expertise here. But what C sixty nine tried to do was say, if the federal government designates this major project as being something that really it ought to be regulating. It's going to designate it as such and, and will subject it to more environmental and social, a very broad ranging concept of, of environmental and social assessments. Um, and many people in Alberta and, and development in other provinces as well have said, look, we already have a regulatory regime that is effectively impossible. Um, not totally impossible, but it, it on average takes like 20 years to get a major project signed off on, approved and built. Um, the regulatory regime in Canada is is Byzantine. I mean, we had this conversation when um, leaders of, of Germany and Japan came to Canada and said, you know, we really could use your liquid natural gas. And Trudeau was like, that's nice. Um, no business case for it was, I think, the language. What he actually meant was- We couldn't um, do it. We literally couldn't do it. The regulatory frameworks are so impossible to navigate at this point. And the consensus that's required from such a disparate level of number of groups, both socially, culturally, and environmentally- is that it's effectively consensus is impossible in this stuff. And the federal government has no will to bulldozer it. So C-69 further cemented that inoperability and said, yeah, the federal government's just going to like, you know, decide that we're going to designate special projects and then we're going to put a, subject them to a host of additional assessments. Um, and this on top of many years of governments jigging and then rejigging and then rejigging and then rejigging the whole environment, the ent- entire environmental assessment process over and over again, which of course has created ridiculous uncertainty for any kind of investor. And no investor who has any brains at all is going to be investing a billions of dollars into a Canadian infrastructure project because that's just money down the tube, even if it does get approved. It's just enormously expensive. And this is what has essentially put Canada into a state of regulatory quagmire, and it's had significant impacts in our CapEx, um, our capital expenditures um, money. Like it's, it's, it's actually pretty dramatically dried up since about the oil crash of 2014. And the regulatory processes are part of it. I think that's more or less accurate. So the reason why BLC 69 was unconstitutional is because essentially because if the government, federal government is giving itself these broad ranging powers to say, these, this major project now is ours to, to, to regulate, this then undermines the, the principle of 92A, which said, no, actually, um, f- natural resources are something that we're leaving to the provinces to decide if they want to mm-hmm. regulate. And shockingly, 
the Supreme Court sided with Alberta on this one, did not side with the federal government and did not side with the federal government with a strong majority. Um, I say shockingly, not because this is shocking in law. I think that anyone who had read the Alberta Court of Appeals um, position on this uh, would find it quite compelling. The, the, the Alberta Court of Appeal was quite strong in its language and said, this is just ridiculous legislative um, uh, mission creep on, on the part of the federal government and would risk undermining some really foundational principles for how confederation is structured and run. Um, and the Supreme Court agreed with them. And I was surprised because this is a Supreme Court that people kind of expected we're going to take the federal liberal side because at this point, nobody really pretends that the Supreme Court isn't a highly politicized entity. Um, and we were expecting to have that to have some significant fallout for interpersonal or sorry, um, domestic politics and how it functions in this country. Told you but they didn't. Alberta. But yeah, exactly. Told you you didn't hate Alberta. Turns out that was wrong. Turns out the federal court saw what the Alberta Court of Appeals saw. And they said, nope, this actually is this, this would undermine, this would fundamentally shake the way that we operate in this country. And, and it is you. an overreach. We love so, you out here. So, you know, actually like as an Albertan, I'm actually kind of surprised um, as someone who, we hate you. that's true. As somebody who, who is concerned about the politicization of the court, I'm pleased. I'm pleased to see the court come out with a, with a, with, with a fair and neutral, what strikes me as a very correct interpretation of the law and the constitution. And also I think it's really funny that I, um, you know, we all know that the provincial government here in Alberta would have absolutely loved, loved to lose, loved to have lost this because it would have been one more piece of proof in their, in their, in their cap to show that Ottawa's, that the, that the game is structurally rigged against us and Ottawa's out to get us. Turns out it wasn't in this case. So, you know, uh, a tip of my hat to the Supreme Court. I think that that was the correct outcome. And uh, now we get to see how everybody responds. This ruling is Laurentian Canada's hug and kiss for our friends in Alberta because we love you. Love, we love you too. You guys. Love you too. Um, anyway. I got a bill in a couple of minutes. So I'm going to yeah. actually give you like a one, I'm going to give you a one minute challenge here. Mm -hmm. You explain the legal context, explain the background context. What does this mean politically for the feds? It means that they've got to go back to the drawing board and 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 rethink how they're doing environmental assessments if they want to do them at all. Yeah, I was going to ask, can they just accept this and then like if they now that this is unconstitutional, what is the law? Government yeah, I don't, I don't know. This is this is where you would need you mm. need extreme nerdism to be able to tell you that answer. I I'm only half no nerd. nerds. I'm only half nerd. Okay, um, I'm not I'm not full bred. You need you need someone with a background in academic law and oil and gas probably from the uh, university of calgary to be able to prepare that apart yeah. for you i don't know whether or not this means that the, the the law just gets thrown out the law has to be replaced um or whether or not the existing regulatory structures are more than adequate it's not like we don't have regulatory structures in canada we do um strong ones even the provincial regulatory structures are very strong so albeit not without their their own things I could nitpick. But um, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is uh, from a policy or a practical point of view. From a political point of view, I think that this is a very significant, it's a very significant loss for the for the, for the federal government. Um, and it's it's a precedent, right? Like it's a precedent where the, the Supreme Court is, can you hear me right? It's a precedent where the Supreme Court is really clearly delineating a limit to the federal government's power and overreach. And, and that is going to have long-term 
some long-term legal consequences and, and understandings going forward. So people are actually quite surprised by this. Um, I think it probably reaffirms the status quo for how our constitution works. So that's yeah. good. Um, and now I don't know what happens next. Well, I will say this. I'll say two things. One of them is un, is unrelated, but it's also interesting. The liberal government this week had to punt their gun seizure two years because they've been mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to seize all those uh, guns. They can't do it. They can't get their shit together. There's no deliverology there. So they've punted it, in fact, so long that all these apparently super dangerous guns held by super dangerous Canadian gun owners can keep them for another two years. This just speaks to the fact that these guys don't actually think the guns of the Canadians pose any danger. Like, if you actually thought there were thousands of ticking time bombs out there, you'd do something. But they've punted it until after the next election. So that either tells us that they are more disorganized than we thought or that they have made a strategic decision to keep this issue alive for the next election so that they can run on, we're going to ban these guns, but Pierre Polyev will let those dangerous Canadians keep them. I don't think it'll work, and I've told you that before, but I think just this week, the Liberals have taken a hit on guns and the environment. It just speaks to the federal politics. It's not going well for them here. Uh, The only other thing I would just say, and it's just a reminder, and I've said this already, we don't hate Alberta as much as you think we do, and Albertans should get over that. It, it, it's not hurting us, it's hurting you. I'm working on it, Matt, one Albertan at a time. I'm doing my part. To the people of Alberta, I've said this before and I will say it again, I love you. From Toronto, with love, I'm Matt Gurney. I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary. Have a great weekend, everybody. God help us all. <laughs>